And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We are currently in a little mini-series in the book of Philippians dealing with this section where Paul is telling this church to stand firm. We find those words in chapter 4 verse 1 where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown... In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So he's telling them, you must stand firm. And then as the Philippian church, and we as well would say, how are we supposed to stand firm, Paul? He tells us, in this way. Thus far, we have seen three ways that we must live out this command to stand firm. The first was found in verses one, or verses 2 and 3, to live in harmony or to be reconciled with one another. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They've ministered with me together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They're believers. They're saved. This isn't, oh, they must not be saved. They're saved. They are just squabbling over some Um, matter of how the church is run or something that they don't like. It's not a matter of doctrine. It's not a matter of theology because Paul would have corrected it. It's just some divisive spirit. They don't like one thing that's going on and they will be up in arms about it. So Paul says, if you are to stand firm in the faith, you must be reconciled. You must race to reconcile and live in harmony with each other. Secondly, You must rejoice in all circumstances. This is found in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you're squabbling about some divisive matter and you are not unified over something, usually rejoicing about that matter will take care of it. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't worry about your circumstances. You might not like something that's going on. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. He is unchanging. He is always the same. Then, number three, we saw last week, we must be known, if we are to stand firm in the Lord, we must be known for a gracious humility or a gentleness. This is verse five. Let your gentle spirit, and we define that as gracious humility, be known to all men. And Paul gives us the motivation because the Lord is near. He is coming quickly. And as he comes, he will vindicate you if you have been wronged. He will judge you if you are the offending party. If we are to stand firm in the Lord, we must live in harmony, rejoice in all circumstances, and be known for a gracious humility. But that's not all. We come to very familiar verses. We come to very difficult verses, challenging verses, practical verses. And so we could have taken all of these steps in one sermon and just gone through them. But I believe that this is worthy of taking an entire sermon to deal with the issue of um, anxiety, to deal with the issue of worry. I've heard it said that worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. You just sit back and keep on going back and forth, but it won't get you anywhere. The word worry comes from a German word, spelled W-O-R-G-N-E in the English. I think if you were German, you'd pronounce that Vergen. That probably isn't right, so if somebody knows how to pronounce that, let me know. But that word uh, in German literally means to choke or to strangle, and we get our word worry from that word. So what is worry? Technically, we could say, based on that word, that it is nothing more than a mental strangulation it's a, it's a strangling of your mind. Something is going on around you that incapacitates you because you are so focused on it and so concerned about it that you, your mind is choked or strangled. We worry every day if we are honest. We worry all the time. Our culture breeds a sense of worry. Just turn on the news and you'll become worried. It's all over the place. But Paul says, if you are to stand firm and be immovable and unshakable and let nothing um, turn you or change your footing, if you are to stand firm in the Lord, you must not worry 
but pray instead. That would be our fourth point. So we have live in harmony, rejoice in all circumstances, be known for gracious humility, and if you want to stand firm, number four, don't worry, but pray instead. Notice it's not don't worry, be happy. It's don't worry, pray instead. Don't worry, pray instead. The verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 6 and 7, say this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Very simply, in these two verses, we find three points, just the negative the positive and the promise. The negative command, this is what you are not allowed to do. The positive command, this is what you do instead. And the promise, if you do what God commands you to do, this is what will happen. Negative, positive, and the promise. Number one, the negative. Paul very clearly starts in verse six by saying, be anxious for nothing. Literally in the Greek, there's a way to construct the Greek, so that this would literally read, stop being anxious about anything. That's literally what this says. Stop being anxious. Meaning, you might say, well, who cares? It's the same idea. Meaning this, the church in Philippi was anxious about something. And so Paul is saying, I know you're anxious. Stop being anxious. So it's not looking ahead to say, you're not, you're not struggling with this, but I'm encouraging you. You're going to struggle with this in the future. So don't be anxious like a pr- proactive precursor. What he's saying is, You're struggling right now. You're anxious about something right now. Stop being anxious for anything. Don't do it. And notice who's saying this. I think we would often say, well, that's easier said than done. And I would agree with that. But notice who's saying these words. A man who is in prison with the likelihood of being beheaded for proclaiming the gospel. And while he's in prison, we saw in chapter 1 that all of his so-called friends are preaching the gospel and maligning Paul and his character. If there's anybody who had the right or the justification to be worried and anxious, it would have been Paul. And yet Paul says, I'm not anxious and I'm commanding you, do not be anxious. Stop being anxious about anything that's going on. Now, we don't know exactly what they're anxious about. In context, maybe they're anxious about the dealings of these two women, that they are fighting together. Maybe it's those two women and their anxiety, but this is a plural command to everybody. It's not just these two women now, it's everybody. It's just the church as a whole. Maybe they're anxious about Paul. Maybe they're anxious about what's going to happen if Paul dies and what's going to happen to our church. Whatever it is, the bottom line is Paul says, stop being anxious. Don't do it. What is anxiety? What does this word anxious mean? We have to be clear about this because that word by itself is not a bad word. Similar to the word lust in the Greek, lust by itself is not a bad word. We've given it a bad connotation, but it's not a bad word by itself. It's bad when it's connected to something bad. Um, Paul says that he lusts to be in heaven. That's a good desire. It's just a strong desire. Same thing with this word anxiety or anxious. The word in the Greek just means concern, care, or worry. A strong concern, a strong care, or a worry. But here's what I want to encourage you with. I think if we were to be very specific and technical with this verse, we would say this, stop being sinfully anxious about anything. Because there are many passages in the Bible that use this word care or concern in a positive light. Let me give you just a couple. Psalm 38 verse 18. You can just write these down. We're not going to go to these, but Psalm 38 verse 18, the Greek Translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses this word in a passage that says this. I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. So David is filled with anxiety because of sin. We've talked about this before with letting guilt do its job and then throwing guilt away. Um, When we sin, a, a necessary consequence of that is an anxiety about how we are dealing with God and our fellow man. And so this anxiety is not bad. It's driving you to deal with it. And that's why Paul said, or David ultimately says, when I confess, it's gone. The anxiety is gone. So it drives you to deal with your sin. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Philippians 2. You're in Philippians. So just turn a couple pages over. Philippians chapter 2, verse 20 says this. This is a, a commendation by Paul about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he says this. 
For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That word concern is the same Greek word for anxious that you see in Philippians 4, 6. And Paul is obviously commending this. He is a, a kindred spirit who is genuinely concerned. So what kind of concern and care is not sinful? It's the kind that says, I want to serve and meet your needs. It's a care for our fellow brothers and sisters, other believers in our church or outside of our church. Another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, says this, May there be no division in the body, but that instead the members may have the same care for one another. That's the word care there is the same word for anxiety. That they might have concern for one another, be unified together, have unity and concern for one another. That's a righteous concern. Paul wants that. He's commanding that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 33, Paul says that once you are married, you have a concern to take care of your spouse. And that's a godly concern. Now you have a care and a worry or a concern that you must take care of your family. And that's a godly thing. Another passage, Luke chapter 10 uh, we talked about this in Family Bible Hour. Mary and Martha, you remember Jesus um, condemns Martha and says, Martha, Martha, why are you worrying yourself? There's the word, anxiety. Why are you concerning yourself with things that don't matter? And then he says this, only one thing does matter. And in the construction of that language, he would be saying, there's only one thing you should be concerned about. It's what Mary was doing. It's worshiping God. It's worshiping the Lord. It's coming to his feet, worshiping him, learning from him, and being taught by him. So, this word in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, literally means be sinfully anxious for nothing, because there are things in the Bible that we are commanded to be concerned about. So what's the difference? What's the difference? Let me give you a definition. I'm going to give you a couple definitions for sinful anxiety. One is attempting to carry the burden of the future on yourself. Attempting to carry the burden of the future on yourself. And notice, this is what's interesting. You can be sinfully anxious, sinfully concerned about the things that God righteously commands you to be concerned about. You can become sinfully concerned when you attempt to burden yourself and you alone attempt to figure out how to deal with the circumstances. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, to define anxiety, we must say that it is harassing your mind, wearying your spirit. It is a wearying care that incapacitates you. So if you find yourself worried to the point where you're frozen and you can't do anything, that's a good diagnosis that you are struggling with sinful anxiety. But here's where I think that we can be helped the most. The word for anxiety or concern or care crosses from righteous concern to sinful concern. It crosses that legitimate boundary when you take the place of God in working out the details of your own life and your own needs. Whatever you are concerned about, how you deal with it is how you are going to respond, whether righteously or unrighteously. How you deal with it determines whether you are sinful in your care or whether you're righteous in your concern. It crosses from legitimate care to sin when you take the place of God in working out the details of your own life and your own needs. What do we normally tend to worry about? Money, financial issues, jobs, careers, marriage, relationships, appearance, weight, family, health. What do we normally do when we worry is we instantly jump into playing the part of God. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this financial situation. And instead of going straight to the Lord and saying, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to do what you told me to do in this situation. Work hard, get a job, do these things and take care of my family. But I'm going to God first. If we do that, we are not sinful in our anxieties. We are not sinful in our concerns. When are we sinful? Legan Duncan helps us out in this. He says, worry, sinful anxiety is a thing that we do to try and feel more in control of a situation that we are out of control of. And you know what? The ineffective thing in worry is it doesn't do a single thing except depress you and discourage those around you. So you're saying, 
I need to control the situation and fix it. And the irony is when you become sinfully anxious and care in a sinful way and concerned in a worried way, you actually do the exact opposite of what you're wanting. You're wanting more control and you're actually more out of control. He continues, it doesn't give you more control over the situation that you're out of control of. All it does is depress you and discourage those around you. And the Apostle Paul says here that this is the solution. Instead of worrying, pray to the one who is in control of everything in your situation because he loves you and he will take care of you. So you say, okay, not supposed to figure out how to deal with certain circumstances on my own. I can't play the part of God. I can't become sinfully anxious or worried. But doesn't everybody do that? Isn't this kind of one of those respectable sins? Why is it really that big of a deal? Is it that big of a deal? Why would Paul say, if you are to stand firm and walk in righteousness and and obedience, you must be anxious for nothing, sinfully anxious for nothing? Is it really a big deal? Can I take you to Mark chapter 4? I want to show you that this um, respectable sin, I believe, has become in our minds, just something everybody struggles with it and we don't need to deal with it. But I want to show you biblically that this, this sin is serious. It is very serious. Mark chapter 4, verse 19. Um, actually, let's start up in verse 13. You remember, this is the parable of the soils. There's four soils. Um, there's the seed that falls and it just instantly goes away. The birds take it. There's rocky ground. There's thorny soil. And then there is good soil. And Jesus is explaining this parable. Only one of the four soils is actually saved at the end of the day. And he explains that for us. Verse 13, he says to his disciples, do you not understand this parable? How you'll understand all of the parables. The sower sows the word, the gospel. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes takes away the word which has been sown in them. That's the analogy of the birds coming, taking the seed away, instantly gone. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So again, bears a little bit of fruit, but it's not lasting fruit, and it goes away, gone, and they are not saved. But here's our key text to see the severity of anxiety, verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, that's our word, the worries, the cares, the anxieties of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful And proves that they were never genuinely saved. So I think we can categorically say that sinful anxiety, when not checked, when not dealt with, in the life of a professing believer, can lead to become a damning sin. It can destroy your soul. There is an absolute uh, severity to anxiety that we must understand. I believe that's why Paul says don't do this. Don't be anxious. Trust in the Lord. Why, why would the worries and the cares of this world choke out the gospel so much so that you would prove that you were never saved? If you think about it, what is salvation? Salvation is a matter of trust. It's a matter of placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He said, you are going to hell and I will provide the way of escape. We all deserve the punishment of hell because of our sins. And he said, I will take those sins upon myself, bear the wrath of God on the cross, die, be raised from the dead, and offer you salvation. If you would not do any works, not earn salvation, if you would trust me. And so somebody says, oh, I trust you. That's a great idea. I like that. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. I trust you. And then they start seeing little things popping up in their life. And as they see something pop up that they think, I don't know if I can trust God in this area. Finances, I'm not going to trust God here. I've got to figure this out on my own, but God, you can take care of my eternal destiny. And then another thing pops up and another thing. And before you know it, all the cares start to amass so much so that they start questioning, is God even trustworthy to begin with? Can I trust him with what he has said to me about his son? 
And ultimately, they come to the conclusion, no, I can't. I can't, and I won't. So Mark 4 tells us anxiety is deadly serious. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, I believe, is also very helpful. It's a familiar passage to you. We used to sing this all the time uh, in Awanas and in Sparks of seeking first the kingdom of God. But Matthew chapter 6, Jesus helps us with this understanding of worry and how to combat it, how to destroy it, how to fight against it. John Piper says this, Anxiety is a condition of the heart that gives rise to many other sinful states of mind. Think for a moment how many different sinful actions and attitudes come from anxiety. Anxiety about finances can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. Anxiety about succeeding at some task can make you irritable and abrupt and surly. Anxiety about relationships can make you withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring about other people. Anxiety about how, about how someone will respond to you can make you cover over the truth and lie about things. So if anxiety could be conquered, here's the key. If we can conquer anxiety, a mortal blow would be struck to many other sins. I would say it this way. Contained in anxiety are the sins of pride, because you're trusting in yourself, not God. A, a lack of trusting God self-reliance, and ultimately unbelief in that area. So, how does Matthew 6 help us? Matthew 6, verse 25. From verses 25 through 24, Jesus is talking about worry. Even the very beginning of it, you can, say, you can see he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. He goes on to say four different times, do not be worried. That's our word. Do not be anxious. But he tells us, what the root of anxiety is. If you drop down, um, go all the way down to verse 30, the end of verse 30, he gives us what the ultimate problem of anxiety, what the heart issue behind anxiety is. He says, O you of little faith. We worry because we have little faith. Now, you might hear that and instantly go, whoa, I just struggle with anxiety. This isn't a faith issue. That's really bad news to hear Jesus say, it's not ultimately anxiety you're struggling with, it's faith. I don't like that. That's bad news. Um, I would say it this way. Yes, it is bad news, that it's a faith issue. But let's say we're driving home, I get huge pain in my stomach, and it's not just because I'm really hungry. Um, I get a really severe pain. And I think, I have to go to the doctor. We go to the emergency room. Doc, what's wrong with me? I don't know what's going on. And they find out that I have an appendix that's about to burst. Is that good news? (laughs) Not in the moment. But it is good news because they know what the problem is. They can deal with it now. So when we hear your anxiety, my anxiety, our anxiety is really a matter of faith and littleness of faith. It's a lack of trust in God. That's not good, but it's the same time it is good we can hear it as good news because now we know exactly what we're dealing with i think another response to hearing jesus say anxiety is a matter of having little faith and even mark 4 you might say i am anxious every day am i even saved i'm anxious all the time am i even saved i mean mark 4 says if you struggle with this it's going to choke the word out the cares of the world am i even saved I would say it this way. Um, there was a, it was a video game that I used to play when I was a kid. It was a little racing cars. And one of the ways that if you were competing against your friend, that you tried to beat the other friend as you were racing, was there was something you could take, just like a puddle of mud, and throw it on their windshield. And for a moment, they would spin around and not be able to see. Now imagine we are, are racing for real. And let's say I'm racing against um, our brother Paul. And Paul throws dirt on and mud on my windshield. Now, I, I have one of two options. I can either say, bummer, can't see, and I guess I, since I don't know where I'm supposed to be going and I can't see the finish line, I'm just going to quit. Pull my car over, stop, get out, and leave. I can do that. Or I can say, we have some disruption here of my vision of where I'm supposed to be going. 
but I don't know if like NASCARs have windshields. I doubt they do, but maybe I'll get out and I'll squeegee it and we'll deal with this and I'll be a little bit behind, but I know how to work with it. I know how to press on towards the goal. If the goal in our life is strengthening our faith and getting to a place where we trust God in everything, then when the worries of this world come, it's like throwing mud on our windshield and we can't see God is trustworthy. And we start to look inside and we start to say, um, I need to deal with this on my own. I need to worry about this on my own. I need to take care of it because I can't see God because this concern and this care of the world is blocking my vision of the glory of God. I would say when we are there, don't quit. Don't say, I must not be saved. Say, you know what, I need to do the work of peeling away, of washing the mud off, of seeing the trustworthiness of God. And the really amazing thing about this passage, and I just want to take a little bit of time and we'll jump back into Philippians, but dealing with anxiety, what are promises that God gives us, ways that we can start wiping off the mud of the worries and the cares of this world when we can't see the glory of God and his trustworthiness, how do we act? What are we supposed to think? Jesus gives us seven promises in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. When we struggle with anxiety, when we are concerned about the worries of this world, he gives us seven promises to help us. Verse 25, let's just go through this quickly. Promise number one, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Promise number one. Is not life more than food? And is not the body more than clothing? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God's going to take care of all these bigger things, he will give you the littler things, the lesser things, to take care of the big things. He will be there for you, and he's going to say that again. Uh, Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. This is promise number two. If God is willing and able to feed insignificant creatures like birds, he will be able to be willing and able to feed and take care of you. You are of much more value than birds, and he takes care of birds very well. He knows when one of them falls, he takes care of them. Verses 27 and 28. This is a promise of sorts. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Um, the, the beginning of verse 27 is really the promise, uh, the promise of the reality that anxiety doesn't work. Um, if you want to try the route of controlling your situation by being anxious, Jesus uh, just kind of trumps that and says it doesn't work. It won't work. You can't gain another hour. You can't add any time to your life by being worried. And then point number four, promise number four, Jesus says you're of greater priority than the flowers. Verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So he says, I I take care of all the grass, the flowers. I take care of all that. I will clothe you. You're much higher priority than a flower. (laughs) Be encouraged. You are much higher on the totem pole in God's economy than a flower. And God takes care of the flowers, so he will take care of you as well. Verse 31, this is our fifth promise. Um, Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Because the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So this is the promise of the fact that God's not ignorant about your needs. God knows. Sometimes I believe that's why I'm anxious. I think, okay, this is so insignificant that God doesn't care about this issue, so I'll deal with this one because I know I can deal with it, and God will deal with the big things. God's not ignorant. He knows all of your needs, and he's not indifferent to any of them. Number six is found in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The promise that if you give yourself to God's cause rather than fretting about your own private needs, God will make sure that you have all that you need to do his will and to glorify him. The promise, take care of what God has given to you to do in obeying the Lord and he'll take care of your needs. And then the last promise, promise number seven, is found in verse 34. So, 
based on everything Jesus has said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is promise number seven. God will give you the mercy and the grace to handle every problem of every specific day. You remember 1 Corinthians uh, 10, where Paul says that no temptation is overtaking you, but what's common to man and God is faithful. He will provide the way of escape for you. He's never going to give you anything greater than you can handle as you trust in him and his character. So you can't add any days to your life about worrying. It doesn't even do anything. In fact, it probably shortens your life because you are um, trying to um, deal with things and so stressed out that your heart starts having heart palpitations and you become so anxious. It probably takes away hours. And you, know, you might look at this passage and you might say, well, I don't really worry about what I'm going to eat. Uh, we're in America. Don't really worry about what I'm going to drink or what I'm going to wear. So this doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> Let me give you something to worry about here. Um, verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the day that's coming up tomorrow and every concern that you might have tomorrow. We all have something that we worry about. And Jesus says, stop worrying. Paul says, stop worrying. And Paul and Jesus both say, if you are worrying, you are sinning. You are sinning. So, if we're not supposed to worry, what are we supposed to do? Turn back to Philippians. Let's get the positive. We have the negative, and hopefully the negative is ringing in your hearts and your minds that we all struggle with anxiety, with playing the part of God in the circumstances and trials that come in our lives. What are we supposed to do? Verse 6 of chapter 4. Don't be anxious. Stop being anxious about anything. But instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is number two. This is the positive. We got the negative. Don't be anxious. What's the positive? Um, start praying in everything with thanksgiving. Start praying in everything with thanksgiving. Paul uses two words here. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication. Prayer is a Greek word that we normally see when we see the word prayer or when we have the idea of talking to God. It's just literally talking to God. But he also uses this word supplication, which is used more often than not in the New Testament to speak of an urgent need, an urgent matter, something that we probably would become anxious about. So Paul says, talk to God all the time. And especially when those urgent needs, those pressing matters come up, talk to God. Talk to God. Let it be known to him. Tell it to God. If I can say it this way, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Prayer produces the exact opposite of, of uh, anxiety. It produces humility. It produces in us, okay, I can't deal with this on my own. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I won't trust myself. I'll depend upon God. And I think that's why God commands us to pray. Now, you might say, okay, experientially, I've done this before. Pressing matter, struggling with anxiety, I don't know how to deal with this, and I pray. And I don't get the promise. I don't get peace. I don't have peace. So prayer doesn't work. I'm going back to anxiety. I've been there before. Can I just plead with you based on my circumstance and based on what the scriptures say? If you are anxious and you know you shouldn't be, so you stop and you try to conquer it by praying and you're waiting for the peace of God to come, you haven't done enough. You're missing a very crucial aspect of Paul's command. He says, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving. I think one of the main reasons that we don't see the results of our prayers in the midst of anxious times is because we're not giving thanks. Now notice, you are giving thanks in this order, in these prayers, you are giving thanks before anything even happens. You're giving thanks regardless of the outcome, the circumstantial evidence and outcome. You're giving thanks not knowing what's going to happen. There's no promise in these verses that what you're asking for will come to pass. And I think that's the crucial aspect of this thanksgiving. What, what are we thankful for then? If we're saying, God, I am broke and I've lost my job and I'm not supposed to be anxious, so I'm supposed to pray. How is that helping me? How am I supposed to have peace? And what am I supposed to give thanks for? You know, some people would say, give thanks for the job that you're going to get, that God's going to give you. But we don't know. 
But we do know this, Matthew 6, God will provide for all of your needs. God is a good God. God sees, he knows, he loves, he cares. You have so many things to give thanks for regardless of the outcome, and I think that's what changes the heart. When you stare at the character of God, that's what you're giving thanks for. And when you stare at the character of God, then it doesn't matter what the circumstances are because you know God is faithful. He is good. He is trustworthy. If you thank God before you see any answers to your requests, what does it show? It shows that you have confidence in God's goodness and his sovereignty and you trust him and you rest in him. Psalm 100 says this. Uh, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with grateful singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. This is verse four. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for, because. Why are we praising God? Enter his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise. Give thanks to him, praise his name because The Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. We can always give thanks for that. There is never one second of any day that those things aren't happening. God's character is unchanging. Uh, Big word in theology for us, immutable. God's character is immutable. It never changes. And that's why the psalmist prays what he does and sings what he does and gives thanksgiving in Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5. Because God is good, not because circumstances are better. So, don't be anxious. Instead, pray with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. What's the promise? Number three, the promise. So we've, we've seen the negative, don't be anxious. We've seen the positive, uh, be prayerful in everything with thanksgiving. Point number three, the promise. What's the outcome? What will happen? What is the promised outcome if you do this? Notice the promise isn't conditioned upon what, upon getting what you're asking for. It's not conditioned upon you receiving what you're asking for. This promise happens the moment you live out this command. Verse 7, the promise, The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. The verse doesn't say we're going to get anything that we're asking for. We don't know if we are. We don't know. Now, what is the peace of God? Is it a feeling? Probably, maybe. But I think we can see in this text it's more than that. It's more than just a feeling. It is the serenity in which God lives. It's God's peace. We could say it that way. The peace of God, God's peace. The peace that he himself enjoys. God is never frazzled. God is never anxious. God is never wondering, is this going to work out the way I want it to work out? God is at peace. And this verse says that we can have the exact same peace. That's what this is saying. God's peace can be ours. It transcends humanity, obviously, because God is supernatural. So he's saying you can have a peace that is infinite, that is supernatural. You can have a peace that transcends anything you can even comprehend or begin to understand. God's peace can be yours. It surpasses all comprehension, obviously, because it's an infinite being's peace given to finite beings. And here's the promise. It will guard your hearts and your minds. That word guard is a military term. It's keeping watch over. It will protect. It will encircle. It will hold your mind and your heart steady. What is it guarding against? It's guarding against the sinful fleshly tendencies to kick into I got to do this mode. It's guarding against that because that will not bring us peace. That is not the peace of God that we get to live in. That is fleshly worrying and anxiety. When stressful situations come, we instantly kick into human mental product and effort to fix it mode. But this is supernatural spiritual peace beyond understanding And so Paul says, if you pray with thanksgiving and let your request be made known to God and trust in him and rest in him, then you will have his peace, the peace that God himself enjoys. And notice where the peace ends up and and the guarding end up becoming a part of. They're not a part of your circumstances. Your hearts and your minds are guarded. 
That's because your hearts and your minds are where the battle is. That's the, battle, the battlefield, the battleground. That's where you need to fight. It's not about take the circumstances away and change them and I will be at peace. It's leave the circumstances. They don't need to change. I can be at peace because my mind and my heart are stayed on the promises of God and I rest in his peace. And we know the truth. If you go just a couple verses down to verse 19 of chapter 4, Paul writes, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will do it. Whatever it is that you need to glorify him, you will be given. If you trust in him and give thanks. Now, I want to be practical here. How does this work itself out? How do we apply these truths? How does it, what does it look like in real life? The reality is, let me give you two, I find this encouraging, maybe it's not, but I think it's just reality, two encouraging verses that remind us the issue here is not, I want to be free from anxious circumstances. Um, these verses tell us that anxiety will always come. So I kind of find that encouraging to know this isn't about not being tempted to be anxious anymore. Anxieties come every day. This is how do we deal with the anxieties. Let me give you the verses. Verse, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 56, verse 3. I love this. My daughter and I sing this all the time. When I am afraid, I will what? Trust in you. David doesn't say, if I ever get scared, if I ever am afraid, what does he say? When I am afraid. When circumstances come that scare me, that I become so worried about, I don't know what to do. When those things happen, because they will, I will trust in you, God. We know they're going to come. Or, 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. This verse, just like Psalm 56, assumes anxieties. They're going to happen. Now, again, maybe that's discouraging. Maybe in some utopian idea we thought, hey, maybe today, because we've heard this sermon, we will never struggle with anxiety ever again. No, we're going to struggle. Probably this afternoon. We'll probably leave these doors, and when we, when we go past the doors, anxieties will come into our hearts and our minds. We will struggle with worrying and sinfully being concerned with sorts of uh, trials and circumstances in our life. It's going to happen. So, practically, what do we do when we're anxious? According to Philippians chapter 4, there's an order. We say, I will stop being anxious. I pray to God, help me, and I cling to his promises. That's just kind of the order of operation. Okay, I can see, I can sense, I know and I feel I'm being anxious because I'm trusting in myself. So I'm going to say, God, I trust in you, help, and you cling to the promise. Pray, promise. That's it. Prayer, promise. Pray to God, cling to the promise. And I want to give you a couple examples of this in Scripture. If you're ever anxious about new adventures, new seasons of life, things that you're unsure about, I don't know how this is going to work itself out. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, you're worried about planting a church. Um, what's going to happen? Who's going to come? Who's going to leave? Are we going to have enough money to be able to support it and do outreach and evangelism and all these different things? What if it doesn't succeed? What if we just flop? What's going to happen? Don't be afraid. God's with us. And God will hold us, and God will strengthen us, and God will help us. And he is righteous and just to do that. You pray, God, I'm scared, but I'm clinging to the promise to trust in you. I'm clinging. Are you ever worried that the ministry that you are so busy with is totally useless and not accomplishing anything? If you're worried, and I've shared the gospel with that person so many countless times, and they never respond, and this is just pointless. Isaiah 55, 11 is the promise you need to hold and cling to. My word shall not return void to me, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for that which I have sent. And you say, God, I'm anxious. I think I'm wasting my time. Nothing's getting through. Pray, help me cling to the promise. I know your word does not return void, so I trust in you. 
Are you ever afraid of being too weary to do any work? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Are you scared or anxious about decisions that you're making for the future? Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you. I will teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God says, I've got you in my view. You cannot outrun me. I see you and I will instruct you as you trust me. Place your trust in me. Are you anxious about facing opponents to the gospel or any form of opposition? Romans 8, 31, if God is for you, who can be against you? Are you anxious about the welfare of those that you love? There's a good concern about that, but it can become sinfully anxious, sinful worry when you think it's all on my shoulders. I have to play the part of God in this. Two verses, Matthew seven eleven. My Father who is in heaven gives good things to those who ask him. Ask the Lord. And Mark ten twenty nine through 30, all who left everything for Christ's sake will receive 100-fold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children in lands with persecutions, but in the age to come, they will receive eternal life. If you have a loved one who is maybe on their deathbed or maybe they um, are not doing well physically, if they love the Lord, you can trust. You can trust that he has a plan for them and that you will see them again. Maybe you are anxious about being sick Maybe you're anxious about a disease. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Or a promise that you can cling to is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Maybe you're anxious about life. In general, maybe you're anxious about death. What's going to happen when I die? Romans 14, 7 through 9. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. doesn't matter. There's no place in between living and dying. Whether you live or whether you die, you are God's. For to this end, Christ died that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. One last one. What if you say, I'm anxious about making a shipwreck of my faith. You see people like that in the scriptures. I'm anxious about that. What if all of a sudden I wake up one day and I deny Christ? Or what if it's a slow burn, it's a slow fade, and all of a sudden I just don't care? Philippians 1, 6, He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Hebrews seven twenty five. God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So anxiety come, troubles come, you pray, God help. And then you cling to the promise and you trust. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, is yours. As the hymn says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we turn to one last passage together? Isaiah chapter 26. One last passage. Isaiah chapter 26. Verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city God sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous may enter. The one that remains faithful may enter. And then here is a very helpful verse. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. So we've got everything in in Philippians 4. Steadfast, firmly rooted. The steadfast of mind God will keep in perfect peace. Because, why? He trusts in you. He doesn't trust in himself. He doesn't see anxieties and say, I can deal with it. I can do it on my own. He trusts in God. So the command is in verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever. Well, of course we would do that. 
because we will be kept in perfect peace. Our minds will be steadfast. We will stand firm. So trust in the Lord forever. And if the reasons above were not reasons enough to trust in the Lord, the reasons below will be. Trust in the Lord forever because in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, stand firm in this way, in the Lord. Place your feet upon the rock that is everlasting and eternal. How do we do this practically today? Can I give you one verse, my favorite verse in the Bible, that I believe is the verse we all need to memorize, we all need to cling to, we all need to have in our arsenal when anything comes that we are anxious about. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What are we going to say to these things? Everything that comes around us, all the troubles, all the anxieties, what will we do about them? And the answer is, if God is for us, who is against us? If he is for us, who is against us? And then here's the promise. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God the Father crushed his son so that you and I may have life, then won't he give us all things? Every other thing that God would give to us is an easy thing compared to that. And he says he will for those who place their trust in him. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that we have him as a Savior, as a Lord, as Master, and as a friend. That he is the one who comforts in the midst of oppressive circumstances. He is the one who loves our souls enough that he would come and die for us. Troubles may come, trials may come, circumstances may be bleak, but we can still say, I trust in the Lord. Praise God, I have Jesus, and he has me and will never let me go. God, may we sing in light of the truth that we've heard this morning. May we live out these commands for our good, yes, but ultimately to showcase how amazing you are, how trustworthy you are, that even when the going gets tough and impossible, we will not be anxious, we will not fear, because Jesus is ours and we are his, and he will never let us go.